Welcome to the Feminist Buzzkills Live, the show that doesn't think not getting a beer at the World Cup is the worst thing happening in Qatar this month. I'm Moji L, and I'm joined by my co-host, Marie Khan. Hello! Liz is out exploring someone else's European roots, but to hold up the three-headed hydra, we are joined by none other than the Beyonce of abortion storytelling, We Testify's founder and executive director, and our friend, Renee Brazy-Sherman. Hello, Renee! Hi. Hi, Marie. Hi, Moji. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with all of you about all things abortion all day, every day, and some things that are not abortion, but mostly abortion. No, definitely always abortion. And we are excited to get into it with you, Renee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking to the Puerto Rican-based abortion doula group Las Mingas about the current state of abortion access and their super multifaceted work to support bodily autonomy. Plus, we will be chatting with Radical Baker and my friend, Becca Ray Tucker. You know her as the Sweet Feminist, and she's going to talk to us about baking and feelings and abortion. And emotion. But first, the anti-abortion movement, um, you may or may not be aware, overturned Roe in uh, June. Uh, And it turns out when looking at the numbers from states that allow abortion and states that have banned abortion, Overall, the numbers of abortion reducted reported is uh, 6%. 6%. That's how much fat I want in my milk, just in case anybody wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, vitamin F? That's like <laughs> super extra. That's whipping cream. <laughs> and uh, it turns out also Republicans have no plans to deal with the you know, one of the main problems people don't want to continue having children, which is the skyrocketing costs of childcare, skyrocketing costs of healthcare, lack of accessibility to basic freaking healthcare, and all the other things that people would need to raise uh, families in healthy really? environments. Really? They don't. Not a single plan. Wow. Shocking. I know. Huh. I mean, you realize I was funny. I was reading about Medicaid expansion and I was like, oh, all these states that banned abortion are also states that fight against Medicaid expansion. It's almost like they don't have Causation? a Causation? Correlation? <laughs> what? What a concept. Wild. Wild. I think it's interesting because one, it shows that people still want their fucking abortions. So you can ban it and people will yep. still go get them. They will go to other states. They will self-manage whatever it is. Like there's the anti-abortion movement has had this idea for so long that they're not just trying to make abortion inaccessible. They're trying to make it quote unquote unthinkable, but people have been having abortions since the beginning of time. And so we will always think about abortion. Some of us more than others, but we will be getting it, you know, even with these incentives that I listed, like some people just don't want to parent. <laughs> you know, some people just don't want to be pregnant. All of these things are perfectly valid. Apparently it's like really hard. I did it once. And expensive. It's so expensive. <laughs> Also, I want to just point out, like, while the number overall number has has only decreased six percent, the pain that's been inflicted on people who need abortion care has um, increased by probably six thousand percent, maybe six. I was going to say more than six (laughs) percent, six million percent. People in Texas and Louisiana have to drive like six hours if they want a surgical abortion. 
I think one of the things that feels interesting to me is that this is 6% that's reported, right? We definitely know that there are people who are self-managing their abortions. And so those numbers are not being counted nope. um, because they're doing it on their own. They're sourcing pills or herbs or um, manual vacuum aspirations in their communities. And so it's might actually be less than that. But the point at the end of the day is that they thought that by banning abortion, people would all of a sudden stop having abortions. No, we're just going to have to figure out a way to circumvent all of the barriers that they've created and made it even more difficult. So whatever, we're still getting our abortions. Just let us have them decriminalized, free, available. Like just let us have our abortions. Almost like the pain is the point. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Almost like that. Well, speaking of pain, suffering, we're going to bring it to Moji, who's going to get it started on our quick hits. Moji. Oh, yeah, I got some bad shit to talk about. Um, So Indiana, not at all in any way interested in slowing down the pain, uh, has decided that they're going to require that products of conception after an abortion uh, be buried or cremated. And this was a law that they put forth in like 2016. uh, But because it was a trash ass law, the judge at the time ruled it unconstitutional, mostly because it forced individuals to comply with this fetal personhood rights that are, let's be honest, Christian supremacy. Also, the cost of burying fetal remains is kind of the same as burying a real person, which is like up to $3,000 bill. And that's added to the cost of abortion service in Indiana. So this is a nouveau trap law. And, um, you know, we'll see how it works out. It just passed a few days ago. So the actual impact has not been felt yet. I mean, it's I want to get back to that point where you said that it's it's Christian supremacy, right? Because it's trying to force people to um, observe uh, funeral rights that are are specifically burial rights are specifically ingrained in um, Christian faith that some people don't adhere to or other religions don't um, want to participate in. And it also makes it really difficult for people of other faiths to to practice what they want to do. Right. I recently learned from the folks, um, Rachel, over at Indigenous Women Rising that um, Navajo folks sometimes ask for the products of conceptions after their abortion as part of a ceremony, right? So Indigenous Women Rising helps them pay for the cost of the funeral home receiving the remains and then a medicine woman taking the remains. And then they can do a ceremony with the person who had an abortion, which I think is really beautiful, right? But again, states stepping in and saying, this is what you have to do with it enforces this like white Christian nationalism of that we have to um, practice Christianity or any religion in the way that they want. And it's whatever, it's trash. It's trash. It's basically trash. I got some more trash. Um, Georgia was doing all right for about 20 minutes, but the Georgia Supreme Court has reinstated their fetal cardiac activity ban as it winds through the court. So it's not decided, but the Georgia Supreme Court said, while we think about it, let's just stop abortions once people can hear a thing on a sonogram. So we celebrated, what was it, two weeks? So that sucks. And this whiplash is fucking, like, it's like hour to hour sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, hour to hour. Abortion, who knows? Who knows? The back and forth is just so exhausting for patients, for providers. So whatever. Fuck that. Uh, But one of the perks of guest hosting is that I get to bring in the good quick hits. Somebody has to. So let's start with some positive news out of Kansas. 
As listeners may know, states have moved to ban telemedicine use of abortion during during the pandemic and ahead of the Roe overturn, right? Some of those states included Kansas. But this week, a judge in Topeka blocked enforcement of Kansas's ban on the method. So our hope is that clinics in Kansas, including trust women in Wichita who brought the suit, will be able to offer telemedicine abortions very, very soon, which, as you know, is super critical for Indigenous folks, disabled folks, folks living in rural communities, or literally anyone who can't get sick days or get time off of work, people with kids. I don't know, maybe the railroad workers who can't seem to get some sick <laughs> any days. days off. Yeah. It, 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 no. any, any days. <laughs> any days off. <laughs> the poor railroad workers who need abortions right now. You just can't get it. I will say, though, a tiny bit of bad news that's tied to all of this is that um, our very, very irritating enemies at Alliance Defending Freedom are setting up shop in Arizona, basically claiming according to their Christian values and like no data anywhere in science that medication abortion is unsafe. And they're asking a court there to ban it for the entire United States and trying to keep the FDA from allowing its use. So anyway, but enough of that, like bad news. Let's go back to the good news. I'm like, we've had, we've had medication abortion for like 20 years in this country, 20 years. (laughs) I know you would think anyway, um, the, I, I do think one thing we should talk about that's good is that in this tiny 500-person town of Prinsburg, Minnesota, they proposed an ordinance that would allow residents to file civil lawsuits against abortion providers, kind of like the Texas law. But the attorney general of Minnesota heard about this and sent them a very kindly worded letter reminding the mayor of Prinsburg that they have no such authority and what they're proposing would be unconstitutional. So, you know, see them in court. So I'm glad that Minnesota is being real Minnesota nice about it and protecting abortion access. Um, But the last bit of good news that I think everyone should think about or know about um, comes from our friends at the National Institute for Reproductive Health, in which they found that in the three months after Roe was overturned, 17 states and at least 24 municipalities passed laws or issued orders to protect or increase abortion access. And that's cities like Atlanta, which approved $300,000 in funding to access reproductive care southeast, the abortion fund there. Pittsburgh banned the bullshit ads for crisis pregnancy centers, and then cities throughout the South declared that they would make abortion prosecutions the lowest priority for police. Fuck the police, ACAB, but I hope that everyone will check out um, the National Institute of Reproductive Health's report on their website, or in the nation, Amy Littlefield has a really great write-up, so definitely check that out. And I will round us out with a general what-the-fuck-is-happening-in-this-country category. First, we're going to visit North Dakota, whose abortion ban just got court time this week. So when Roe ended and this trigger ban started, the state's only clinic sued, moved across the border to Moorhead, Minnesota, to continue to provide care. And what makes this ban especially complex, and when Liz was here last week, her and Moji and I talked about this, is that it allows abortion if the life of the pregnant person is in danger. But the burden of proving that is on the doctor through an affirmative defense, which this makes it so hard for for folks to feel confident and able to provide care. Right now, the band is enjoined, so it means it's not active. And we're waiting to see what the North Dakota Supreme Court is going to do next. And what we are seeing out of Texas now is that doctors are documenting the harm Texas's SB8 and SB4 abortion bans have had on their ability to deliver quality and timely care to pregnant people specifically those who are before 22 weeks and develop severe pregnancy complications. 
28 pregnant people were studied, and it took them an average of nine days for their pregnancies to devolve to the point that under Texas law, they could get medical care. One of them needed a hysterectomy, and a full third of these folks had to be hospitalized, receive surgery, or stay in the ICU. And you know what could have minimized all of that harm? Timely abortion care. Yep. As always, these stories will be in the show notes, and we remind you that the best, most up-to-date resource on accessing abortion care is INeedAnA.com. So deep breaths. Now that we've got you sufficiently briefed on major news, it's time to start digging into the bullshit and show the hypocrisy and tactics of forced birthers. Mojers, what do you got for us? Oh, I'm taking us to Arkansas where uh, some trash ass state rep has proposed a bill that is really, really just a bit of a pretzel for me. Uh, So he's proposed that employers who offer their employees the right to travel out of state for an abortion also be mandated to pay for 16 weeks of maternity leave. I'm a huge fan of maternity leave. I think 16 weeks is barely enough. It's like the floor that any birthing person should have, right? You 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 bear for nine months, right? You should be able to at least have nine months, but really like year, year and a half sounds about right. What's wild about this for me, however, is that they only want this mandate to apply to companies that support their employees' right to choose, right? Only those employers who are willing to pay for people to leave the state that has banned abortion to have the care that they want. If you are like, fuck no, have them kids, then he feels like you don't have to do anything as an employer. You can just chill and, I don't know, fire your employees because they're pregnant. How long do they think an abortion lasts to go out of state (laughs) also? Like uh, apparently 16 weeks. It's, it's like here, we're going to give you one tampon for like the, 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 the two weeks you're stationed somewhere, or we're going to give you hundreds and it's just you in a spaceship. Like <laughs> someone needs to talk to someone here and figure out the cruelty of their numbers because it doesn't add up. It just cracks me up that this gotcha is so very like, okay, well, if you're going to give them abortion access, you also have to give people parental leave. Yeah, actually, mm-hmm. we like people to have parental leave. Who do you think this gotcha is for? But also, 16 weeks isn't enough. It should be at least it's a year. It's not enough. It's not enough. This is, it is just the weirdest, like, trying to show hypocrisy, but actually just, like, failing on your own and getting, and showing hypocrisy. I don't understand. It's this. like he went so far right, he went left, but then he, like, turned right again at the last minute. <laughs> So weird. So close. <laughs> and yet, ah, swing and miss. <laughs> well, that is absolutely some bullshit. Um, but also let's talk about some more bullshit. I believe, Marie, you have a little bit more. Yes. Our second item has this is more of a theme within a specific context. We are looking here at the calculated care our white supremacist legal and prison system takes in weaponizing pregnancy. And this is especially profoundly felt by people of color. Last week, we learned of an Alabama woman that was jailed for using drugs while supposedly pregnant after her child told a social worker that she was pregnant. This person was kept in jail for three days. Not only were they not pregnant, they were actively menstruating while they were being held and asked for and were denied menstrual supplies. They also asked to be pregnancy tested. And finally, on the third day, when they did test negative, that's when they got to leave. But not before they were warned to not get pregnant by jail officials. And another another news element we've seen this week in terms of pregnancy being weaponized that includes an actually pregnant person is the work the ACLU is doing right now to fight on behalf of someone who's pregnant while incarcerated and whose judge 
at the request of absolutely no one, decided spontaneously that their pregnancy should be appointed a guardian ad litem. Now, this is what living, breathing, born children and adults sometimes need in court proceedings. This interferes with this person's autonomy, their birth plan, their needs, their goals. And we also know that jail officials are trying to get this person scheduled for inducement, which is something that she does not want unless medically necessary that has been voiced. Also, what's wild about this is like, she doesn't need an inducement. They just want this to make it easy for her jailers. Yep. Yeah. Not this is very not centering the pregnancy. It's certainly no. not centering the pregnant person. No. Like we know they don't no. care about that. But this shit, like <laughs> no. the stress that you are putting on a pregnancy. I can't the way in which they just have utter lack of humanity for people who are incarcerated on top of being incarcerated and pregnant. I mean, it is it is really frustrating. I think one of the things that um, Professor Michelle Goodwin talks about in her book, um, Policing the Womb, which everyone should read, it's real thick, real nerdy, but so, so good, is thinking about personhood and how when our the repro movement didn't pay attention to how incarcerated people or people who use substances were treated during their pregnancies, that was actually the groundwork for what we're seeing now and it's it's truly just wild that people, when you become incarcerated, but also when you become pregnant, how many of your own rights that you lose um, beyond just being shackled with pregnant by, while being pregnant, which is already horrendous inhumane. and violent and inhumane, right? But on top of that, like every decision that you'd like to make about your pregnancy, just it goes out the window. You don't actually have any rights. It's scary. And the Alabama story that Marie first talked about, this sheriff there has a history of essentially um, jailing people who are pregnant because they maybe smoke weed, maybe got, got seen drinking alcohol, did any of the things that he decides are are danger to the fetus. And you know what's dangerous to a fetus? Jailing the pa- the parent. Dealing with a pregnant person is dangerous to a fetus. It is not a safe place to be for anyone, for anyone's state of mind. Also, I mean, I don't, I'm like, it's the mind boggles. So clearly this person has children, presume pregnancy. And they're like, the smart thing to do is take this person away from their children. Yep. For no I fucking mean, reason. You know, police are known for having the best and brightest ideas, of course, especially yeah. when it comes to pregnancy. Yeah, right? <laughs> this is the true theme of this podcast. <laughs> Fuck the well, police. Anyway, this all reflects the man-made cancer that is the racist carceral tr- structure around pregnancy in this country that we're all aware of, but we need to remind you. And this is why reproductive justice exists, to demand birth justice and respect that parenting and pregnant folks deserve and need. Um, and helping speak a little bit about the the help that pregnant people need in Puerto Rico. Joining us today from the Puerto Rico Abortion Doula Collective, Las Mingas, are Marianne Colella, a full-spectrum midwife, and Camille Lauren, an abortion doula. Las Mingas provides information, support, and accompaniment before, during, and after an abortion in Puerto Rico. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. First off, can you tell our audience a little bit about the work that Las Mingas does? Yes, so Las Mingas is a group of diverse um, abortion doulas and companions that offer information and accompaniment before, during, and after an abortion here in Puerto Rico. 
We also offer information regarding the legality and access of abortion, um, useful resources. We also have an educational component. We've trained uh, almost 250 doulas here on the island since 2015. And not all of those doulas end up working with us as part of the collective, but they're out there in their communities and their friend circles. And that's like a really important part of the work that we do that maybe not everyone has to formally call themselves an abortion doula, but they've come through our training and now they're there for their community. Could you quickly just tell me exactly what Las Mingas means? Yes, in English? so Las Mingas, Las Mingas basic, it's basically a term that we used to refer to a friend. And it also, um, the term also means uh, a group of volunteers doing like community work. So we use it out of like solidarity and we thought like we might relate more to people using that term. I love that. So how did you all get started? What's your origin story? I can start there. I was one of the original trainers. I was actually part of a group called the Boston Doula Project. And we started in 2014 and I was one of the founding group of that abortion doula collective. And then in 2015, we got a random email asking if we would come train on the island. And it was wild because I actually had a lot of friends and community here. And my partner, my wife is Puerto Rican, which is why I'm here. I'm, I'm not Puerto Rican. But um, I, I we ended up coming here and having a little paid for vacation <laughs> to come do the training. And we trained, I think, 40 doulas in that first group. That was December 2015. And then I left to go to midwifery school and um, I found out that they had actually started a collective, which is always the goal when we go abroad to do a training or go to another community to do a training. We hope that there's a group who wants to stay together and do the work. Um, So I was really thrilled to hear that that happened. And then I graduated from midwifery school and came back and was able to join the collective, which is already up and running. It used to be called the Pro-Choice Accompaniment Collective. Uh, which was a mouthful. Um, it's a lot of words. And the, yeah, and especially in Spanish too, it's even longer, um, where it's more syllables. And uh, it they didn't have a high volume of clients or participants, you might say. Um, when I came in, uh, there were some internal dynamics that were rough. And then at the start of the pandemic, we sort of disbanded and kind of rebranded and changed the name and the logo and some people left and new people came in and we had our first virtual training in uh, 2020 in in the middle of the the start of the pandemic. And I think in June, we trained 40 people. We were skeptical about a virtual doula training, but it actually went very well. We were able to make some beautiful videos of some of the more hands-on techniques. Um, And then we've had another, this past summer, we did a second virtual training. And as I said before, we've trained almost 250 abortion doulas here in Puerto Rico And we um, have currently 26 active Mingas in the collective. That is amazing. I mean, truly fascinating, wonderful work. And um, I started out as a portion doula as well. And I think it's just life-changing work. Can I ask, um, because in learning about what you all do, part of your programmatic work includes funding the cost of an abortion through your abortion fund, um, Pote Solidario. So talk about your work in that area as well. Yes. So one of the biggest obstacles here in Puerto Rico is that there are only four clinics and they're all up in the north and no medical insurance covers an abortion. So the El Pote Solidario or the Solidarity Pot 
um, helps us um, fund those things like transportation, childcare, food, lodging, labs, meds, or even the the abortion process. Um, so we've been raising funds just to help out people get whatever they need to get to to be able to assist to the clinic. I'm really glad that we talked about the abortion fund and mentioned that because it's that's a cost that faces people in so many other places. So for anyone listening, to just, cost is always a basic basic barrier for folks. And I wondered, aside from you mentioned four that you all have four clinics that folks can access, are there other uh, barriers? that have or other obstacles that folks in Puerto Rico are facing when they try to access care besides cost? In terms of location, transportation is one of the biggest obstacles because it's not easy to get. Here in Puerto Rico, there's no like an accessible free public transportation. So for example, some from someone from the west side, the south side, east side, or even like islands like Culebra and Vieques, it will be really hard for them to get to San Juan, Bayamón, or, or Carolina, which is where the three clinics are. And I would say, like, that's one of the biggest obstacles. Apart from that would be, like, since there are so, like, only four clinics, it's kind of hard to get an appointment as soon as it requires because, you know, this is very time-sensitive. That's also why there are um, some inner works of trying to bring um, – abortion telemedicine here in the island so that it will be easier for someone on another town to just call up, have an appointment with the doctor and get their medicines on the mail. I wondered about that, if telemedicine was, if it was a lot, if it was legal, like we are, we are all supportive of safe, safe abortion care, regardless of whether it's legal or not, but we want it to be legal. Are, Are folks able to do that? Or is, is there still like concern from the government that the government or that police will do something? In theory, from my understanding, yes, it is possible um, because I know that there are some people trying to work to make it happen. It is just hard um, because not everyone is like open to it. Abortion is such um, uh, like a taboo topic. And recently there's been programs of um, like for training doctors that work in OBG and want to do abortions to try to like expand the 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 accessibility of abortion like all around the island, but it's still work that's currently happening, you know, so have some time left for that to actually be realistic. Are the mm-hmm. doctors in Puerto Rico open? Like, are there enough doctors that are open to this or are a lot of doctors resistant to offering abortion care? I wouldn't say that I, I have an exact number, but I would say like from experience, there are a lot of barriers. Not a lot of them are open to it. Um, in fact, I've had experiences where I've been the doula of someone and they they're having like um, bleeding, for example, and abdominal pain. So they go to the hospital and they explicitly say that they were that they're like already have an, an appointment to have an abortion and they will look down on them. They will treat them badly because they don't want them to abort. There's just also a, a real lack of doctors in general on the island, like as one of the <laughs> symptoms of being a colony is just under being under resourced and the Mm -hmm. medical system here is is suffering i would say extreme under being being extremely under resourced and uh doctors have left the island since hurricane maria and they keep 
leaving and leaving. And so in general, some people like my wife just waited three months to see a neurologist um, because that's how far out the appointments are sometimes, depending on if you, especially if you need a specialist for something. Uh Um, So that adds to the problem. So you brought up the colonization of Puerto Rico. Can you talk about what that actually looks like from a healthcare standpoint and and what does it mean because Puerto Rico is, you know, not an autonomous country on its own from the United States. It's still under the weight of the United States is like colonialism, white supremacy, all of those things without some of the without any of the benefits of being like a state or something like that, but also like not an autonomous country. How has that colonization impacted reproductive health care and abortion care? I think one of the main issues here has been the access to education. Um, And so people have a lot of misinformation on sexual and reproductive health in general. And the access to that education creates a culture where people are like against and against topics like this that they don't really understand. And also um, the migration of people, like it is cheaper to study here in Puerto Rico um, like a bachelor's or even a, a doctor doctorate, but then people leave the island to get better work opportunities. And that's where what Marianne was saying about um, how we don't really have a lot of healthcare professionals here in the island. Also, I feel like, you know, privileged people run right to wherever they feel like they can best exercise their privilege. And it's not far-fetched for people to be like, okay, I got what I need from this island. I got an inexpensive education and now I can take everything I've learned and use it somewhere that's more convenient for me. I know that um, one of the areas that you all have also faced attack is politically that there's been that there's been more anti-abortion legislation and proposals and just talk than than Puerto Rico has had to deal with before. And it I feel like maybe a lot of that's imported or a lot of that influence is pushed in. But in general, you just had four anti-abortion projects that got defeated in the state Senate session, which is wonderful. And we wondered if you could talk about what those would have what those would have done, the harm they would have done and how you all mobilized within Las Mingas, within your other within your smaller insular communities to fight them. Yes. So I would say that Puerto Rico is a very conservative um, place. And there has been a lot of fundamentalists right now that got up in the government, in the Senate, and they they're super anti-abortion. They're, we call them anti-rights because it's not only about abortions. It's about our rights to choose for ourselves and for our bodies. And so these people kind of wanted to copy what's been happening over there in the U.S. Like, for example, the Texas ban, the first one, the heartbeat ban. They try to copy that. They try to also copy, I think it was in Alabama that they tried to make it illegal. And not only legal, but um, like if a, a woman or a person had an abortion, they would get like 99 years in jail. They also try to copy um, a project like that. And another one was like limiting the weeks of gestation. Right now in Puerto Rico, the laws are very broad in terms of abortion. There is no legal time limit to get an abortion here in Puerto Rico. And so they were trying to limit that to make it only up to 20, 22 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And mm. abortions after the second and third semester are usually medical abortions that need to be done because either the life of the of the pre- person that's pregnant or the 
the fetus is not viable. So they they were just trying to limit all of that. But thankfully, um, there's a lot of feminist groups over here um, pro-abortion that we've been working for years to try to keep our legal status here right now. As for Las Mingas, we created um, a memorandum, I think it's it's called, just like explaining all of our experiences, accompanying people, and what would it mean for them to not have the access that they have for now. It is already inaccessible to get an abortion here in Puerto Rico, so that would just limit it even bigger. And there were also... Um, like where they call like experts up um, on the court and they just like have to talk about the topic. Oh, yeah. Like a friend of the court. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of other feminist groups and just like organizations, they went up on the court and like explained with hard science, evidence based facts, you know, how dangerous it will be to limit abortion. I remember at one point, one of the anti-choice people are was suggesting that the 22-week limit that a good solution would be to just induce premature birth for those people that they could just have their babies at 22 weeks and we had to like just get doctors to be like actually that's not a viable like uh, having a baby at 22 weeks like not even the world's best NICUs could guarantee that baby would survive like at 24 weeks it's already a stretch so it was just really not based in any um, medical evidence. They don't like facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. <laughs> facts, reality, I don't know, humanity towards other people. It's wild. I know we only have a few minutes left and someone else is going to ask you a question, but I had one quick question that I wanted to shove in here. I know where you all are situated. You have the Dominican Republic to your west that doesn't have abortion, period. And I was wondering, also, is Puerto Rico a site for folks that are coming from other countries and other spaces to access care at all, too? Because you all are not in a vacuum. You're right there. And I'm wondering if you also are supporting people whose countries and who governments refuse to do anything. Yes, we've supported people from other countries um, where it's not legal and from like um, on other states from the U.S., especially now after the historical (laughs) event of Dobbs. So, yes. Yes, we we not only help Boricuas here in the island, we just help anyone that we can. I love that community solidarity, amazing work that you all do. So for the listeners, how can they support you? What are three things that people can do right now to support Puerto Rican autonomy and abortion care? And of course, your work. First of all, like just learn a bit more about our status right now. A lot of people don't know that we're a colony um, and they don't really understand all the struggles that we go through. So that and just to like get the word around of what's really happening here and like in abortion all around. I think it's very important that we talk about these topics, especially educate, because that's one thing we do a lot. Also, like educate people. And of course, donate to our pot because <laughs> it is very important for us to keep doing this work. It's completely voluntary. We don't get any money out of it. We just do it out of love and solidarity. It all goes to the people that need it. I love it. Marianne, do you have anything you wanted to add? No, that's that's it. That's all I would say too. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much to Camille and Marianne from Las Mingas for joining us. 
In the show notes for the listeners, you will be able to find information on how to donate to Las Mingas and their um, Pote Solidario. And of course, please follow them on social media, find them Las Mingas on Facebook, and then at Mingas de Aborto on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. We're going to talk more soon, but first have a message from one of our many commercial non-sponsors. Are your pro-life dating apps full of people who won't go all the way? And by all the way, of course, I mean people who will only go to third base on banning abortion. How many times have you been swiping right, talking, thinking they're really into you, and when you finally go to finish the deal with, jail the doctors, jail the patients, they're all like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you're moving too fast. They shock block you with, what about ectopic pregnancies? Or pregnancy won't survive outside the womb. It is the worst. And it ain't what you're looking for in a Mr. or Miss alt-right. Am I right? To find your soulmate, get off your Christian mingles and your evangelical evermores and sign up for Unhinged. With Unhinged, you'll connect with pro-life singles who share your values with no room for debate. When you say jail them, they say for life. There is nothing more pro-life than that. With Unhinged, there is no more wasting time with wannabe life of the mother pro-lifers when you could be with the pro-life man or vessel of your dreams. Sign up now with the promo code PROLIFE, not your life, and get 20% off your destiny to find the perfect match. Unhinged, one app, two genders, no exceptions. It's not enough to mingle with Christians. Make sure they're unhinged. We really do have the best sponsors on this I'm show. Sorry. I need you to know, I'm so glad I didn't do that <laughs> because I was reading that with the capital D as unhinged D, like as in like messy dick. <laughs> like, do you want some unhinged dick? Here it is. <laughs> That's like a lot more fun if I'm honest. <laughs> I was like, do you want some unhinged dick? Here <laughs> Before we move on to our next guest, we want you to know that comedy duo Frangela will be counting down the best and second worst repro stories of 2022 with the Buzzkills. And you can loosen in on Friday, December 16th. Here's a little preview. Hey, it's Liz, and I'm not just with my feminist Buzzkills live co-host, Marie and Moji. I'm also with Francis Collier and Angela Shelton, a.k.a. Frangela. Hello, everyone. We're joining forces for a special code pod where we break down the best and the second worst stories about abortion in 2022. Because we all know what the worst was. No spoiler alerts on that one, unless you've been asleep all year, in which case, good morning. Mm, How are we even supposed to pick the second worst? Mm, So much trash to take out. And so little time. Yes. Feminist buzzkills and Frangela. To infinity and beyond. We really need a Frangela Buzzkills mashup. Okay, how about this? Feminist Buzzkills Live. When BS is popping, Franz Buzzkilla pops up. See what I did there? Yeah, we did. Yeah, don't do that again. Ever. Ever. Rude. Okay, so who better to join us than Becca Ray Tucker, aka The Sweet Feminist? You love her Instagram. I know you do with all the cakes 
and the pro-abortion sayings. She is a baker and author who uses all of her baked goods as an artistic medium while talking about feelings and destigmatizing abortion. Her first cookbook, Baking by Feel, just came out this October. Welcome, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Hi Becca. Renee. Hey. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. We're so glad We're you're here. So excited to have you here. Yes. So fun. So it's been quite a journey. You have a whole cookbook. It's a real thing, Baking by Feel. Can you just tell us one? How I know. Let's all hold up. Our, our so, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! I don't have one in here. Oh wow! <laughs> the, the funny thing though is that um, both Moji and Marie have made stuff from the book. I cannot bake, but I have tasted all of a bunch of your recipes because you've made them and they're delicious. Um, and I remember the day when you and I were sitting there talking about doing our books and you were like, I'm going to make a cookbook and it's a real thing. So can you talk about why, <laughs> why you decided to make a cookbook and why it went about feeling? Yeah. So I, before I started the Sweet Feminist, which is my Instagram platform, I ran a small food blog where I wrote recipes um, with my roommates. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and so, you know, my big dream for my life was, you know, to write a cookbook. Um, and so it took a long time to figure out how to do that and um, make it a reality. Um, but I decided to make it also about feelings because um, I, ha I had the opportunity to go to therapy a couple of years ago for the first time. Um, and so I was really like thinking about feelings and figuring out like, how do I feel my feelings because I intellectualize them, it turns out. Um, and so it turns out that it's easier for me to feel if I'm doing something tangible in the real world with my hands. And so when you are connecting and grounded in that way, it's easier to feel those um, big feelings that we tend to, you know, push away or judge ourselves for. So I just sort of tried to merge two interests, baking and feelings. I found the feelings uh, framework also made even just you know, you get like a beautiful cookbook like this with like lots of beautiful pictures and it's just like what to make. And I found yeah. the framework of feelings. I just like, I, I made the donuts with my son this week and I was like, what do you want to feel? And he was like, I want to feel this feeling. And I was like, oh, oh, great. That's the first thing here. We're making it. That's <laughs> very sweet. That makes me very happy to to hear that. Yeah. I see it as sort of a tool and a roadmap um, because I think a lot of people use cooking and baking to process their feelings anyway. Um, I think that's pretty common. And so this is sort of just, here's your structure um, for doing that thing you already do. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Also, the donuts were incredible. <laughs> I'm so glad. Which glaze did you do? Okay, so <clears throat> I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say this and on record. My son really likes chocolate. And so uh -huh. I made my own chocolate glaze. Oh, I was... love that. It is a choose your own adventure thing. <laughs> it was. Choose your own yes. path. There. He so was like, I is... want a chocolate glaze. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make one. And it was just okay. But I, I only used half the <laughs> dough. And so I'm going to use the dough and use one of the other glazes before because, yeah, my chocolate glaze was questionable at best. <laughs> it's hard to mess up chocolate. I'm sure it was delicious. My son loved it. He's already asked me to make more. So yeah, oh. yeah, we're into it. And then Marie <laughs> made the um, pineapple upside down. That's oh. pineapple spice cake. I made that. Yes, I like that one. I like and I especially—I don't know if you could—you spoiler a cookbook, but it—it it doesn't have maraschino cherries. 
<laughs> it does not. Huge spoiler. I don't think and I you don't... need them. No, and I don't like them. And my dad never liked them. Which it doesn't like them. He's still around. But that's the reason why I like that version of the cake. And the fact that you specifically did it that way made me happy. I'm so glad. <laughs> I was amped. I also wanted to let folks know, A, that are listening, that Feminist Baker, it's just one of your many titles. You're also an abortion storyteller. And I was yes. curious if that figured into your your organization, your selections, your choices behind the cookbook. Yeah, I mean, I think my work with abortion informs everything else um, in my life. So yes, it it feeds in there. I talk about my abortion story in the book, which I am proud of because I don't know of another cookbook that talks about an abortion story. So there is one now and I'm excited about that. I really also love your feminist baker and on Instagram, your feed, if someone like just looked at it with glazed eyes, they'd be like, oh, it's all pink and sprinkles and delightful. (laughs) But then it's like, it's the sweet feminist. And so it's also like pro-abortion, like pro-rights, which must really fire up the haters. So do you get fun trolls? Yeah, I get less now. There were a lot in the beginning before I figured out how to set up the comment filters and and all of that. Um, I think people sort of know who I am now. So people who are mad or like, oh, yeah, it's it's that lady again. Um, but I, I do think when you make desserts, they are inviting. And so it makes it easier sometimes to talk about these topics that are sort of hard to talk about. Sometimes it's more approachable if you put it on something pink and frosting filled. One of the things I've always admired about you and just like thought is just, just wonderful. So you start with the the cake. I don't know if it's a spoiler, but not all of them are cakes. I know when I learned that from Becca, I was like, what? Don't tell people that, Renee. <laughs> They're full cakes, everyone. They're full cakes. They're all cakes. They're all cakes. She makes a whole cake. But you you use that design to talk about issues that might make people feel uncomfortable or educate them, right? And then you've also used the, you have conversations in the comments to to really educate people. And, and I remember there was one in particular when you said, um, you know, about canceling rent and everyone freaked out on behalf of the landlords who, who need advocacy apparently. But this is a time of year in which a lot of people are with their families. They're having intergenerational conversations about social justice issues and politics and what's happening. They're also baking, making pies and, and all sorts of favorite goodies. What advice do you have for people who are are with their loved ones and are trying to change the conversation and 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 use food to to build political organizing? Yeah, so I mean the table with your family is a great place to do that. Um something that I think is really important is taking an inventory of the language you're using to talk about abortion um and people who have abortions and see if it aligns with what you want to be saying and sort of lead by example in those conversations um, with your family and uh, friends around you. So, you know, I've made the transition from saying pro-choice to pro-abortion. Um, and so I, on my Sweet Feminist page, I'm talking to people about, you know, I used to say pro-choice and I don't need more. And here's exactly why. Um, and here's an answer to your question about your concern about this. Um, and so I try to yeah provide an answer to questions that people might have so they can take that into those conversations with them. A, what is your favorite type of food to cook? No, and and I wanted to recognize that cooking and baking are two different things, which Moji <laughs> highlighted to me earlier, which <laughs> I wanted to acknowledge. Um but yeah, what are what are your other culinary areas of exploration? I really like making homemade pasta. 
Um, it's just been a personal project of mine for the past, I don't know, five, 10 years. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know if I've perfected it yet, but I try it. It's a good stress reliever too, because it takes muscle and time to, you know, knead the pasta dough. You have to knead it for 10 minutes straight. So you really can't be doing anything else during that time. Um, and so it's sort of a meditative, uh, process for me. I don't know. I'm Midwestern. I like making casseroles. That's like a, I don't know, a home. Oh, where are you from in the Midwest? I'm from Kansas City. Oh, nice. Which, okay, the the Missouri side or the Kansas side? Both, but mostly on the Kansas side. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maria and I were having a long, a long casserole conversation just a few days ago. Oh my God, about what kinds? It's so specifically about one with tater tots and cheesy gooey stuff it's almost like a mac and cheese with tater yeah. tots yeah. and i was yeah. like i feel like i had it in minnesota and they called it a hot dish a hot, hot dish, dish. Yeah. i was gonna say that's uh-huh. a minnesota yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i was like that. i don't yeah. know why the name was because then i think someone else who was from michigan was with us and she was like i really love a green bean casserole and i was mm. like i do not i make a hash brown casserole well, also hot dish, they sometimes will put like cornflakes and other random shit on top. Oh, yeah. You just got to put butter on the cornflakes. If you put the butter on the cornflakes first, that's much I feel better. It's like your answer to everything. It's it is. Butter is <laughs> the answer always. Oh, my gosh. I was raised not eating butter, and I think I discovered butter in my 20s, and I was oh like, life changed. Life changed. <laughs> butter is like the best thing. It's Never good. look back. <laughs> butter is fantastic. So good. I want to ask, so you put this, the cookbook out, right? And I think people are so used to knowing you on Instagram. And then this is such a different medium for people to get to know you. I know you've been on um, your book tour. I saw you at the here, the one in DC and you cooked with people, which is so exciting. Can you talk about what it's been like to meet people IRL and, and bond and honestly organize, do progressive abortion organizing over food? Yeah, it has been, it's really incredible to meet people in real life, um, you know, because Sweet Feminist is a digital platform. It's really just me on my phone most of the time. Um, and so it is energizing to meet those people in real life. Yeah, I did a an event at uh, Bold Fork Books in DC that Renee came and filmed for me. So I have content for my real that I still need to make. But yeah, we raised money for DC abortion fund um, at the same time as we were talking about my book and we were making cookie mixes to take home and bake. And I think sometimes people want those things to be separate, like, oh, you're a baker, you need to stay in that lane or, oh, you talk about abortion and you need to stay in that lane. But there's a lot of overlap with people that are interested in both. So I am trying to represent that overlap um, and make it more normal (laughs) to do both of those things. And I would say with the book, like it's a growing thing for me. And I think it's okay to grow and evolve and people might know me as this, but I can also do this other thing. And I'm just trying to move forward in the path that feels, you know, true, true to me. I actually have a really specific question about how the feelings are organized in the, in the book. How did you choose to like mix a recipe with a feeling? Like what was the impetus for like making the decisions that you did make about why each recipe fell under the umbrella it did? 
Sure. So sometimes it's like a vibe thing. So like with lemon, that's a very bright, happy flavor. Sometimes it's about the process. So like boredom is paired with this complicated pastry recipe that forces you to really be in the moment and do this activity. And yeah, so it's not like there's several there are several different ways how that could happen. But like my black pepper snowballs, they're paired with vengeful um, because you're mixing the dough entirely by hand. You're not using a spoon. You're not using a mixer. You're like getting in there with your hands, sort of channeling that vengefulness through something physical. Um, and then also there's powdered sugar flinging everywhere. It's very dramatic. It's just it's just a fit. So, yeah, there are a few different ways. I love that picture you just created. <laughs> like, <laughs> sugar flinging everywhere. And that's vengeful. how it is. I mean, that's the real thing in your kitchen. That's what it looks like. It's true. Cause actually, as you started, as you started talking, I was like, oh yeah, the donuts were an adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Donuts are hard and complex. So it is until it isn't like the last bit is just like, oh, I like, I think one batch, I like walked away for a minute and I was like, and now they're black. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be on it. Even one second away. <laughs> That's amazing. So talk to us about what's next for you and the sweet feminist and making by feel all the things. Yeah. So right now I'm in the midst of my holiday shop. Prep. So I am making my little ornaments that look like cakes. <gasps> the ornaments are back. I figured out a new way to do it that is much better. So that's good. So I have pro-abortion ornaments that, and all feelings are okay ornaments that are going out this year. And I don't know what's next is that I want to pitch another book or I, I've started writing another book. I'm pitching it right now because um, I really enjoyed that process. And then also just continuing to support people who have abortions and do that work and you know I'll do that till till I die I don't know about the recipe thing the pro-abortion thing I'll do till I die <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll see other than that I feel like pro-abortion never stops it doesn't stop <laughs> it doesn't you got to stay with it forever people mm -hmm. will need abortions forever we got to do this work forever yep Becca thank you so much for joining thank us thank you this was so wonderful I'm so it glad that I so met fun. you all and like, yeah. we didn't know Renee was like one of your best friends before oh, sorry. she told us. So that was so great. <laughs> so it's also like incredible that we had both of you together. I know. What a great day. Follow Becca Ray Tucker at The Sweet Feminist on Instagram and buy her cookbook, Baking by Feel. And you can buy the ornaments. More info at thesweetfeminist.com. Thank you. And that is our show. Thank you again so much to Camille and Marianne from Las Mingas for joining us. In our show notes, you can find information on how to donate to their Pote Solidario abortion fund. You can follow Las Mingas on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter at Mingas de Aborto. Thanks so much for listening. We are here for you as we navigate these dark days. We want to be a reliable info hub and a source of humor as we face some really hard times ahead. We're in this together. We got you. Subscribe. Write us a review. Give us five stars. It's the best way for our podcast to reach more people. And by doing so, you are helping more people learn about this assault on abortion access. To keep up on all the latest repro news, follow us on social at Abortion Front, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. FBK Live is edited by Remy Day Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Looking for where you might fit in some abortion activism? Look no further than our five-part training series, Operation Save Abortion, available in video and podcast form. Gather friends, watch or listen together, and follow the activity guide for the full experience. 
Details in the series are at operationsafeabortion.com. And make sure you check out the activist calendar as well, which is chock full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. Looking for some other action, like be a part of the solution action? There are independent abortion clinics, funds, and clinic escort groups who need your help this holiday season. Check out the link in the show notes to buy items from their wish list so they can help patients access care and feel safe and supported. Then send the link to your friends and encourage them to join you in spreading the holiday cheer. And if you are in the Twin Cities area, December 30th and 31st, make sure you catch Liz's annual end of year show at the Parkway Theater. This is the 13th year Liz has returned to the Twin Cities to hilariously roast the year that was, and this will not disappoint. Tickets are available at theparkwaytheater.com. Next week, the Buzzkills will be joined by my dear friend and abortion storyteller, Melissa Madera, the founder of the Abortion Diary podcast, board member at Inroads, and special projects consultant with Plan C Pills, plus author, educator, and creator of Smarter in Seconds, Blair Imani. And lastly, join our Patreon. You'll support great content, get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. And if you want to support We Testify, you can always make a donation to wetestify.org slash donate. But also you should totally get some of our amazing merch like our I Had an Abortion t-shirt or... Go to uh, The Outrage. Uh, they, we have an amazing partnership with them. This amazing Everyone Loves Someone Who's Had an Abortion t-shirt bag and a throw of blankets. That's amazing. So um, check us out and follow us on social media. We're at Abortion Stories on Twitter and at We Testify on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, you can find me on Twitter, my full name. I'm usually doing some bullshit over there. Uh, we'll leave you with white nationalist and Mar-a-Lago dinner guest, Nick Fuentes, a man who shows his whole ass by yearning for the good old days of bonfires and drownings. And women are out there naked and they're killing babies and they're getting to be 300 pounds and they get in your face and we can't do anything about it. You can't hit these people. You can't punch them. You can't, they don't arrest them. And basically they're taking over the culture on social media. I said, what happened to the good old days a thousand years ago when people like this, instead of arguing them or saying, hey, listen, darling, everything's okay. They would dunk them in the river, burn them alive. Feminist Buzzkills Live, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.